Before I do that, I want to let you know that um, Megan Freimeyer's father passed away this last week uh, unexpectedly, and that funeral is this Tuesday at 10. I wanted to mention those details because I forgot to get an email out uh, earlier, so that service is at 10 o'clock here at Newton Bible Church. Uh, These are tremendous opportunities, and and I say this as uh, an encouragement to you in multiple ways. First, to encourage you to pray, and then second, if you're able, to encourage you to come. Um, I've had a a grieving family say to me recently how blessed they were by our church family coming to the funeral of their loved one whom our church family did not know, but they came to support our church family, and that's what family does, right? We show up when it's hard, Uh, and just them being there and and talking with them and being there for them was a, a huge expression of the comfort of Christ to this family. And that's just one of, of many testimonies I could give you of that very thing. So if you're able this Tuesday at 10 to be here to support Keith and Megan and the rest of their family, that would be a huge encouragement and blessing to them. Uh, if you come and if you can't come, you can still do this. But please pray for that service and that time together. There, there is a few opportunities in our culture like a funeral for the gospel. Uh, there's, there's few times when people in our culture stop everything else they're doing and think about their eternity. That used to be something people did. In our culture, we're kept so restless and busy that we hardly give thought for our soul. But at a funeral, you can't help but do that. And so it's a, a captive audience in the, in the face of their own mortality being confronted with the forgiveness offered them through Jesus. So please pray for the gospel to be clear for the Spirit of God to move. We, we cannot command the Spirit of God to move wherever He wishes to do, He can. But pray that He would show mercy to those who come and that some would come to saving faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. So please pray in that way. Before I pray, I was just thinking as Dennis was reading Genesis 43, I was captured with how much that foreshadows the gospel. Uh, you and I are the brothers we have done everything against the, the one in charge who should welcome us in. He, he should judge us. We should expect going into his house to be cast out and condemned and for everything to be taken from us. And yet Joseph, not perfectly, but is a foreshadowing of Christ, uh, his greater son who secured for us an entrance into the Father's house where we can eat with him for all of eternity. That is grace. So in light of that, let's pray and thank him for his grace. God in heaven, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for revealing to us on every page your amazing grace, the overflow of your kindness and your goodness to sinners like us. Thank you for your righteous and holy standard by which sin must be dealt with. We praise you that your grace does not mean that you do not care about that which is holy and right and good but that in grace you provide a way for our sin to be vanquished from us and taken from us and put on your son. Lord, we are astounded by the welcome we receive into your home. As family members in this life, part of the household of God, the local living church, but beyond that to the eternal dwelling place where we will eat with you and you with us. Father in heaven, we tremble at the thought of such glory. And we rejoice that you have paved 
the way for that to happen. You've made it possible. You've set eternity in our hearts. You've given us the down payment of that eternity through your spirit. And we are sure that soon it is going to happen. That soon in eternity future, we will look back and see how fleeting and short life in this world was and how glorious and good life in the world to come is. Lord, we pray for those who don't yet know Christ. Our hearts are so burdened for them that they would die in their sins and be separated from this grace. Lord, we beg of you to spread your grace abroad into their hearts as well, to make them trophies of your grace, that they too might give thanks to you both now and into eternity for the forgiveness of their sins. Lord, we pray especially for the time on Tuesday morning to have the gospel proclaimed to hearts that are considering their own eternity. Father, we pray for the unbelievers who will gather that morning that you would now be preparing their hearts by your spirit, convicting them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment for which you sent your spirit into the world. And Lord, would you make the way ready for them to receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus. May it fall like that good seed on well-prepared ground, received in by faith and then springing forth to new life. Father, this is our desire. We know this is how you work. We've seen you do this in our lives. We long for you to do this in the lives of other sinners, that they too might be worshipers of you for all of eternity. Lord, we do pray for comfort for Megan and her family. We beg of you for this grace we've sung about today to be real to them in every moment of every day, in the weeks and months and years to come, and not just for Megan and her family, but for all the others who recently have experienced loss like this. Lord, we pray that the, the normalcy now of, of not having that loved one around would be met in each moment with your comforting grace. As the pain remains, the loneliness and the difficulty is still there for them. Father, would you prove that your grace is greater than our struggle, that your power is sufficient in our weakness. Would you help them through these dark and difficult days? And Lord, we praise you for the, the privilege to send a team out from us to go to be servants in another place, to serve Dave and Brenda, to be a part of the ministry there. Lord, we ask that you would prepare that team well, that, that we as a group would would come together in unity of heart and mind and purpose and that you would grow us in uh, our own faith, in our own uh, exercising of the, the muscle of faith and, and spirituality. Would we be more like Christ because of the efforts we put forward to prepare for the trip? And then, Lord, would you use us in however you choose and please to be a blessing to that church in Cayambe? to advance the cause of the gospel in that neighborhood and in that town and in that region, to be a shot in the arm for Dave and Brenda. Father, we ask you especially would help us to know how to uniquely encourage them, to let them know we support them in every way and are with them as much as we can be on their team seeking to reach Ecuador for Christ. Lord, we also praise you for other missionaries who have gone from us to take the gospel to hard and needy places we praise you for Jim and Lydia today, ministering and serving faithfully year after year. We rejoice in their steadiness and in their effectiveness, Lord, all products of your grace upon them. We pray that you would help them today to keep their hand to the plow, 
to work hard in the field in Brazil that you've called them to. I ask that you especially would help them as they have a lot of uh, new opportunities with, with seekers or new believers, uh, particularly these couples that they're ministering to through, through premarital counseling. Father, we ask that you would, would help Jim and Lydia to know what these couples need to hear from your word. Give them the wisdom of your spirit to meet those uh, hearts with your truth and to set them free with your truth and to make them faithful, growing servants of you. We also pray for wisdom for Jim and Lydia as they think ahead to what would be next for them in ministry and longing to get to another region in Brazil to plant another church. Lord, if that is your desire, would you open those doors in ways that no man can close and make obvious to all that this is what your will is? Uh, Until then, Father, would you help them to serve faithfully uh, and joyfully as they are doing where they are. We also pray for Brent and Jen. Thank you for our brother and sister and their uh, years of faithfulness in Utah, their, their hard work of building relationships, of, of saying the gospel over and over again and being rejected over and over again. Lord, would you give them joy and courage and strength today as uh, they launch out with this new church plant? I pray, Father, that you especially would help Brent and Jen to by your um, direction and your, uh, your insight into the situation, help them to know where best they should serve and what that should look like and how they should give their lives and time and energy and effort to uh, the people of Farmington, to the work of this church. Father, we beg of you to save lost souls and especially the Mormon people. Or would you open deceived eyes to the truth of the gospel of Jesus? Or would you help Brent and Jen and their team and the church family there? to be useful to you for your glory. Lord, we praise you for your word. Thank you for John 15. Thank you for these words we'll consider this morning. We ask that you would open our souls to their deepest depth this morning and expose to us areas that we need the healing balm of your word to penetrate and touch. We ask that you would encourage our faith, strengthen our love for you, amaze us with how you have welcomed us into your inner circle, making us your friends. Father, would you humble our hearts by this reality and cause us to serve you all the more in the week to come because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bibles and join me in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, we return to the fourth gospel in the New Testament, the last record of the life and ministry of Jesus. As we march through the narrative of John, we come and approach soon the climax of all human history, the cross of Jesus Christ. From Genesis 3 to John 19, things have been building one event after another, one prophecy after another, one man and one woman in the line of Christ after another to bring us to the point of the Son of God entering the world and giving his life as a ransom for many. After the cross, the climax of human history, everything will descend from that highest peak. Everything that happens in human history after John 19 is affected, is done in the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ. In John 15, we have just minutes to go. The clock is ticking, hours are descending, and Jesus is about to give his life on a Roman cross. He knows it's coming. This does not take him by surprise. He has in many ways made sure the events are going to happen. 
He has provoked the Jews in just the right ways and just the right times. He's put himself in position to be taken into captivity and taken to a cross to give his life for us as the Lamb of God. He knows he has just a few more moments. And in these final hours with his disciples, he finds a private spot, an upper room of a friend's house. And he spends time giving the Passover meal to his disciples, washing their feet, and then speaking into their lives, pouring truth into their hearts. And as he talks to them, the cross looms large over everything he says. No word spoken in the upper room is not informed by Calvary. He has on his mind the dark shadow of his soon death, and he wants them to know, listen, this is what you need to know and to believe and to live, to be prepared for my departure, for it is indeed at hand. In John 13 through John 17, that's the upper room discourse you could pinpoint many themes of our Lord. He, he draws many uh, threads together throughout his discourse, but one most certainly would be that of love. And, and you could make the case that it is the supreme theme of the upper room discourse. That is indeed how it started in John 13, verse 1. John says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he Loved them to the end. So he's loved them up to this point, and this is his final act of love for them all the way to the cross. And everything he says to them in the upper room is driven by and dripping with his love for them. This is all about his love. One of the realities of Jesus' words is to call his disciples to love one another as he has loved them. One of the last times we were together in John 15, we considered what I think to really be the heart of the upper room discourse, and that's John 15 verses 1 through 11. That's the, the nerve center, if you will. That's the, the heart pumping through the rest of the upper room discourse where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. It's the, the spiritual nerve center of every Christian. It is to be connected to Christ. Now he transitions in John 15 verse 12 from that metaphor of vine to branches and explaining that relationship between he and them to a, another picture, another, another way to describe this relationship, and that is of friends. You are no longer my slaves, he will say. You are now my friends. So he's communicating to them in the upper room, listen, this is When I'm gone, you need to know our relationship does not change. I am the vine, you are the branches. I am the master, you are the slaves, but also you are my friends. What does that mean? What's the, the reality of these friend relationships that Jesus now says he has with his disciples? The the word, by the way, for friends is the word philos which you probably more likely remember the word phileo, another Greek word for love, brotherly love. So literally, to be a friend is to be one that is loved, a loved one. And so Jesus calls them his loved ones, his his friends. So you're not just branches producing fruit. You're not just slaves doing what I tell you to do. You are my loved ones. You are my friends. 
What does that mean to be a friend of the master? What are the, the benefits and the responsibilities of a prestigious position to be called a friend of the master? That's what he'll explain to them in our text. I'm going to start reading in verse 9 to give some context. I'm going to read all the way down through verse 19 to draw some things together. Verse 9 of John 15, As the Father has loved me, Jesus said, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Did you notice how in verse 9, Jesus started with the love of the Father for the Son. The love of the Son then comes to the disciples, which then compels them to abide in this love of Son for the disciples. And this abiding love will then make them love one another. You see the, the descent there? Descending from the high peak of the Father's love for the Son down to our love for one another. It's, a, it's an unbreakable chain of divine love that affects us to show that divine love in real human relationships. And it is the only way, by the way, that, that true God-like love happens. You can't just tell someone to, to love someone and they'll go do what they should do in, in mirroring God if they don't know the love of God first. They must know the love of God, having that love flow through them to one another. But then did you notice how he contrasts that with the world's hatred for them in verses 18 and 19? We'll talk more about that next week. But if you do know this love of God and have been chosen out of the world to receive this love and you love one another, you will be at odds with the world. The world will not love you. This love sets you apart. There's a main point that I think Jesus makes in verses 12 to 17. The point is that you are my friends, he says, therefore you should love one another as an outworking of that love you know from God. You're my friends because you're my friends. Love one another and love one another because you know this love. You've been loved by God, that love, the, the command to love one another has uh, what makes them part of being the friends of the master. So he says, love them, and if you do this, you will be my friends. But that's not where we start, and that's not where Jesus starts. It's, it's where he starts in the order of things, but it's not where he starts logically. So the, the middle of the text is actually the, the ground of the text. And then we had to work our way out to understand what he meant by love one another. So the command to love one another brackets the whole section, verse 12 and verse 17. But as he gets deeper into the teaching, you can see that he's laying the foundation 
for why and how and what it looks like to love one another. It's because you're chosen. It's because you're appointed. It's because you bear fruit that remains. You then love one another. So there's, there's three realities of being a friend of the Master. You're chosen, appointed, and commanded. Let's consider the first one. It's the foundation. They are chosen as friends of the Master, as friends of the Master. So before we can understand what it means to love one another, we need to understand how Jesus ties their calling in with his command. That's in verses 15 to 16. The progression of the text in verse 12 is the command. As I have loved you, so you should love me. Then verse 13, he says, there's no greater love than that someone lays down his life for his friends. Then verse 14, he says, listen, you're my friends if you do what I command. Now, if the text stops there, obviously, we'd be quite tempted to believe Jesus is creating a works-based relationship between us and him. That you can be a friend of the master if you do what he tells you to do. If you obey, you're his friend. If you don't, you're not. But because the text goes on, we know that's not what he's saying. Well, how do we know that? He, he goes on to say to them, here's how you are my friend. Verse 15, he says he no longer calls them slaves, but friends. And what is it that makes the difference? How did they go from slaves to friends? Did they obey? Well, no, in the text, he says a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. He just does the next thing. But that's not you. I have revealed everything I've heard from my father to you. So a slave has no idea why they're digging that hole. They just know that their master said, dig that hole right there. When they're done with that hole, then the master says, okay, now dig one over here. And they don't see the big picture. They're not told the whys. They're not told the big plan. They just do what they're told. But Jesus says, when you have a friend, you tell them the whole thing. You reveal to them the reality of what's going on. So when you have a friend come help you on a project on your house, you don't just say to them, okay, listen, here is your job. Dig that hole. Happy digging. When you're done, come and I'll give you your next assignment. That's not how you treat friends, right? They come to your house and you're glad they're there and you just start exploding to them about the, the big things you want to get done today and how thankful you are that they're there to help you. And, and let me tell you the, the plans and here's what I was thinking, but you know, what do you think about that? And you reveal yourself to them. You welcome them in to the project and to the work to be done. Jesus says to his disciples here in the upper room, listen, I have told you everything I have heard from the Father. I've not just given you the next command, the next marching order, but I have lain before you the mind of God himself. He tells them that he's, he's not just limped them along with the next truth. He has laid before them the full mind of God. He has come, as John said in John 1, as the word of God to exegete the Father to mankind, to lay plain and straight all that God has revealed for us to know. And he says, I am calling you friends because I've revealed myself to you. Then he cranks it up a notch in verse 16. So you're taken from slaves to friends because you've been revealed what God wants you to know. Then 16, he says, I want you to know that this has happened because you've been called. You've been chosen. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. The emphasis, emphasis in the original language is to put the negative on the pronoun. So you could 
translated, it was not you who chose me, but I chose you. He's emphasizing that this was not you doing this. I did this. This relationship that I have with you as my friends is my doing, not your doing. I picked you for me. It's really an astounding statement. You know a little bit about rabbis in the first century, a teacher. They would, they would travel and they would draw a crowd. And they would draw a crowd based on their teaching and, and on uh, the likability, essentially, of their teaching. And if people appreciated what they said, they drew more disciples. And you would pick your teacher. You would pick your rabbi, the one you appreciated the most. And you would follow him and attach yourself to him. And Jesus flips that paradigm on its head and says, listen, that's not what happened here. I chose you to be my disciples. I brought you to me, not you choosing me as your favorite teacher. You've done this in school, right? You've picked your favorite teacher, homeschooler, sorry. I mean, I guess it's mom or dad you can pick. You went to a traditional school in a classroom. You probably have a favorite teacher you remember or even today remember, right? And you know the joy of, of that teacher then shaping your life and, and giving, pouring truth into you and you, you highly respect them and you appreciate them. But have you had the experience where that teacher now takes the initiative to, to turn to you and to go beyond the, the teacher-student relationship, the master-disciple relationship to, to friend relationship? Where they welcome you into their life and they reveal themselves to you in some way. I've had this experience just a few times in, in my journey through education where just a few teachers took unique interest in me and revealed themselves to me and, and just opening their lives to me. And it is those teachers who had by far the greatest effect upon my life and my shaping for all things. This is part of what Jesus says he is doing here, but, but there's, there's more than that here. He's not just picking his favorite students and inviting them over for dinner. Rather, he's taking chosen objects of his saving grace. He's rescuing them from their sin. He's setting them apart to serve them, to serve him with their lives. This choosing of his disciples is not just a, a friendly relationship. But rather, it's a, an appointing to a radically different life. A new eternal destiny. A new purpose given by God. This choosing by Jesus is based, obviously, then upon his sovereign wisdom. These men were poor fishermen from the backwater region of Galilee. They obviously had some interest in the religious realities of the day. They were following John the Baptist, many of them. They were interested in the forerunner's message. They were anticipating the Messiah. But they had nothing unique to offer to this rabbi, Jesus, sent from heaven. It was not them that compelled the, the choosing of the master to be their, to be his inner circle, his friends. Just like it is in the Old Testament with the choosing of Israel, as Moses says so often in the book of Deuteronomy, I, God says to the people of Israel, I did not choose you because of you. I set my love on you because I set my love on you. The same thing he says to the disciples all throughout the Gospels. It's the same thing he says to us in the Epistles, God's sovereign choosing to salvation and service is never based upon merit and it's never based upon our choice. 
It is based upon his will and his love. And now notice how Jesus gives them the wonderful news that they are no longer slaves, but friends in verse 15. And then he immediately counters that in verse, 15, in verse 16 to say, I did this, not you. So he gives them the, the glorious good news. You're no longer a slave, you're a friend. But that wasn't you doing it, that was me doing that. I have made you my friends. I have chosen you for this. Let's take just a few minutes and talk about the, the sovereign will of God relating to the human will of mankind. One of the hardest realities to wrestle with in, in understanding how salvation works is the very thing we're talking about. Okay, so let's be clear there. One of the hardest things for our human minds to, to grapple with and grasp is what the Scriptures say about the sovereign will of God. Sovereign meaning rules over all. And the corrupted, sin-darkened will of man. And along with that, then how does the gospel come into a heart and how does one come to saving faith in, in light of the sovereign will of God and the corrupted will of man? There's much to say here. I want to just say a few things, hopefully to help you. Ways that have helped me think through this scripturally. One of the most helpful things for me has been wrestling with what God's word says about the will of God and the will of man. For indeed, whatever we land on, we need to be able to say scripture says this, correct? We need to stand on the foundation stone of scripture. So what is it about the, the will of God, the decision-making part of God? What is it about the, the will of man, the part of you that makes decisions? What does the Bible say about that? Well, to summarize quickly without turning to text, because if I did, we'd be here till three. God's decision-making is, to summarize, eternally wise, sovereign, meaning it can't be resisted or changed, perfect, never erring, never unholy, never unrighteous, universal, sovereignly universal. He has a, a will that pertains to all things. Holy, meaning it's never tainted with any part of corruption. Full of grace, his will is, is driven by his goodness, informed by his kindness and his love. And ultimately, we could say much more, but ultimately glorifying to him. When Scripture talks about the will of God, that, I think, is a helpful summary statement of his will, his decision-making. Well, how about man's? What, is, what does Scripture say about mankind and, and how we make decisions, our, our will, as it were, the entity within us by which we make decisions, like believing or not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, throughout Scripture, man's will is always presented as corrupt, corrupted by sin, Depraved, meaning there's no part of it that hasn't been touched by sin's effect. Man's will is presented as rebellious, having thumbed our nose at God in the garden and saying, no thanks for your will, which was don't eat the fruit. We'll do our own will, which is to eat the fruit. And ever since then, we have followed suit in that rebellion as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Man's will is 
presented in Scripture as selfish, driven along by the lusts of the flesh. It's, it's driven by what you want, by what you like, by what you love, by what you've set your heart on. And ultimately, it's described as glorifying to self. The, the will of man is, is for man. It's about me, and how do I make this decision for me that props me up or helps me or pushes me along in life? It's easy to say in Christian conversations and in lingo in the church to say that man has a free will, and in particular to say that he has a free will to choose whether or not he wants to believe in the gospel of Christ. And that's, that's really the core of the issue, right? There's other areas to talk about the will of man and the will of God, but really this is it, is how they respond to the gospel. And we like to talk about the, the will of man being free to choose. And I think what drives us to say that is because Scripture calls men to believe in the gospel. And so we want to say, well, if he can't believe in the gospel, then he's just robotic when he does come to faith by God giving him the ability to believe. And so this is just a robotic thing, and, and we don't want to make it robotic. How does that glorify God, that he had to, had to zap you in some way to, to move you from a will that would never choose to a will that will now choose? That's what we wrestle with, I think, right? Probably other things, but I think that's the core of it. And those are legitimate wrestlings. We ought not make light of those. You're more convinced of, of the doctrine of election than your brother or sister in the body of Christ. Have patience. Be kind. Have helpful conversations about this. We're all in process here, right? We're all working through this together. So let's root ourselves in the Word and let's have grace-filled, love-oriented, spirit-united conversations about this. And let's run to the Word. What does the Word say about that? Well, as you think about the, how the Scriptures present the will of man, and you're right now saying, well, I don't get to say anything right now. You're saying all this to me. We're not having a conversation. You're telling me what you believe. Be glad to have that with you later, obviously. When Scripture talks about man's will, it presents it as captive to sin and dead to God. So in one way, I think it's right to say man has a, a free will, meaning that God does not make our decisions for us. We don't live in a make-up, made-believe, make-up, a made, what is the word I'm looking for? A made-up world of make-believe choices that feel like they're of our own volition, but they're actually God's volition. He's already made the choice. We're just robotically operating in the world in light of those choices he's already made. That, that is not how Scripture presents the human experience nor the interaction of God to humanity all throughout human history. But what the Scriptures do say is that man's will is captive to sin and dead to God. So we're operating with a will that is fundamentally polluted and corrupted by our sin nature. And like any part of God's creation, we act according to our nature. This is why God gives you a nature. So you do what your nature compels you to do. This is why animals have an animal nature. They, they operate according to their instincts. And this is true of us as sinful man. We operate according to our sinful nature's instincts, as it were. And so when we make decisions, our wills are, are free to operate in accord with who we are, which is essentially depraved sinners given over to the lusts of our sinful flesh. So 
Therefore, as the psalmist so clearly says in Psalm 14, there is no one who seeks God. Because your, your will is bent away from God. You're free to operate according to your will as it is informed by your sin and shaped by your sin. And the teaching of Scripture is you're, you're never, with that kind of a will, you're never going to choose God apart from His working on you to bring you to saving faith. And this is His grace. This is His will using the means of, of gospel proclamation, of the love of the body of Christ, of conviction of sin by the Spirit of God in the individual heart. He uses those means to move the will away from depravity to new life. And somewhere along the way, you have the glorious mystery of regeneration from John 3 when Nicodemus is wrestling with Jesus. How is it? Jesus says to Nicodemus, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. What he means is you need to be completely remade. With the will you have, you can't get in to the kingdom of God. The nature you have, you can't enter through those gates. Nicodemus says, well, how do I enter? Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be regenerated. Well, how does that happen? Jesus goes on to say the spirit moves like the wind. It blows where it wants to blow and moves how it wants to move. So too does the spirit of God. He moves and acts upon the souls of mankind as he ordains according to his sovereign will. So when someone comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not God pressing upon their will to move them to something that is against their will. It is God working in their heart to bring them a new heart and a new nature so that they will choose the Lord Jesus Christ as an act of His saving grace. So there is responsibility for mankind to believe. There is the command to repent and believe the gospel. If we disobey that command, Scripture is clear, we are eternally responsible. We are not robots operating in a make-believe world where the realities are predetermined, but we are captive to our sin nature, and we cannot and we will not choose contrary to our nature. The bottom line is, if we persist in unbelief and die in our sin and end up in eternal punishment, we have no one to blame but ourselves. But if we see our sin for what it is, turn from it and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, his perfect righteousness laid down on the cross of Calvary as an atonement for our sin, his substitutionary death, his burial in a real grave, his victorious resurrection over sin and death and hell, conquering sin for the sinner. If you look and live, you look and believe and live, that is to no credit of anyone but God's. He has done that work in you. He has rescued you. And he deserves eternal praise for this eternal salvation. Now, I understand this is a, a difficult topic. I very much understand, believe me. I've had more heated conversations over this doctrine in church life in 22 years of pastoral ministry than almost anything else. It's easy to say that in the moment. I would have to actually count them up. But there are a few conversations that get people 
hot under the collar like this one. I'm also well aware that there's different opinions on this issue in the room. And I want you to know that's, that's okay for us to grow and work together through this. As I pleaded with you earlier, let's be Christians about this. Let's be full of grace and truth and love for one another about this. The last thing Newton Bible Church needs is someone standing up on their, on their doctrine soapbox and demanding that everyone fall in line with how they understand this or that in Scripture, unless, of course, obviously it is one of the fundamentals of the faith. Now, the sovereign grace of God is a fundamental of the faith in the sense that we all affirm salvation is of the Lord. If you don't affirm that, you're contrary to Scripture. Jonah says that. Salvation is of the Lord. How you explain the details, let's work through those together. I would hope you'd find us as a body to be a group of people that can have that brotherly and sisterly conversation. What's at stake here is not being right. What's at stake here is being true to Scripture and knowing and loving our Lord to his glory. So may God advance that among us. Back to John 15, Jesus tells us in the upper room, especially to the 11, you are my friends because I have chosen you, because I have revealed myself to you and made myself known to you. Just think about that with me for a minute. How many men in Scripture, in the Old Testament in particular, does the Bible say we're friends of God? I'll answer the question for you too. Abraham and Moses. Only Abraham directly, Moses indirectly. Both of those men experienced what the Jewish people understood to be a unique revelation of God to them. And you can go back and read the account over and over again. They're welcomed into the, the visible presence of God on earth and they're given unique revelation. Abraham and Moses are. And that relationship is defined as friendship of God to them. He discloses himself to them. He reveals himself to them. And that is what makes friendship what it is, right? This seems somewhat obvious, but stating the obvious is preaching, so let me preach it. This is what friendship is. It is a self-revelation. This is the, the sine qua non, the the sinews and the joints and the marrow of friendship. It is an opening of self to someone else. Before I go much further, though, let me be clear in Scripture, there's, it's never said that God is someone's friend. So Moses and Abraham and Lazarus and the disciples are all called friends of God, but nowhere are God nor His Son Jesus called Abraham's friend or Moses' friend, or Lazarus' friend, or the disciples' friend. So the relationship between the disciples of Jesus and this friendship is different than what we think of in our relationship with our, our best of human friends. It's not to say that God is not the friend of sinners. In fact, he's the, the best of, human, of friends to human sinners. How do we know that? Well, Jesus defines the greatest of love, which is what? That a, a friend lays down his life for his friends. What do sinners need more than anything? They need atoning for their sins. Well, who provided for that? Their, their greatest of friends through his greatest act of love. He is the great friend of sinners, but we must be careful to not demean our Lord, to think of him as a, a friend we chum around with. High five on the basketball court and minimize him to our level of friendship. It's a friendship based on his choosing and his self-revealing. Back to the application to your life. Just think of, 
of your own journey as it relates to friendship and what is required of you to be a friend to someone and someone to be a friend to you is the risk of letting yourself be known. And we all crave this. We've all maybe had some of the the joys of, of this experience in human relationship. We desperately need the joy and the blessing of of Christian friends, especially within the body of Christ. I would say my my experience in the life of the church, not just this one, but many others, is that many people, especially in our day, and, and as isolationism and individualism rises in culture, I see it rising in the church. And people withdraw from the risk of friendship. Come and do the time of church life but don't invest themselves into a relationship by which they will get hurt. That's the the nature, the fundamental reality of being a friend, is that you're taking the risk of letting yourself be known to someone else, and and you can write it down as a law. It's going to hurt you at some point. And just take Jesus as your example of that. Jesus, the all-wise master, opened himself up to his 11, well, 12 apostles, appointed men, revealed himself, the mind of God to them, welcomed them in as friends to his inner circle, and every last one of them betrayed him and turned from him and abandoned him, right? John's gospel will end with Jesus restoring Peter as his friend because he abandoned him. So to be a friend like Jesus is a friend means to take the risk and take the lumps that come with revealing yourself to one another. And you say, well, why bother? Why would I do that? Because friendships are the avenues of love that you're commanded to in verses 12 and 17. This is the DNA of Jesus' friendship to his disciples. They know he's their friend because he loves them. He made them his friend by revealing himself to them, and then he carried on the friendship by loving them. And that cost him something. That was sacrificial. So too, brother or sister, may this be what we need to hear today. Maybe you have been withdrawing and withholding yourself from friendship in the body of Christ or Maybe even in your own home, in your marriage, or in your relationship with your kids or kids to parents. You say, well, they've hurt me before. Yeah. Yeah, they have. And you've hurt them. It's the nature of sinners living together in a sin-cursed world. This is the risk that's required for true friendship to move forward. And it's going to hurt you to love one another. It hurt our Lord. It will hurt you, but... You have been given his love to pour out in this relationship. You don't have to muster the love. You don't have to come up with the resources to love that friend who hurt you yet again. You can return to the relationship strengthened in Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. Not only are they chosen, but they're also appointed, and we need to move quickly, as you are already watching the clock, I'm sure. Verse 16, they are chosen and appointed. 
Jesus says, I chose you and I appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And whatever you ask in the name of the Father, he will give it to you. This divine selection process is quickly followed by a divine commissioning. That word for appointed is exactly that. It's a commissioning to service. Hebrews 1-2, that word is used as appointing Jesus as the heir of all things. Acts 1 verse 7, it's used to speak of the Father appointing the last days. In our own text, it, well, in chapter 10, Jesus says, I have appointed my life to lay it down for my sheep. In verse 13, in our text, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down their life for their friends. That lay down is to appoint their life for that very thing. That's exactly what Jesus is, is saying here. I am laying down my life for you. I've appointed my life to love you in this way. And now I have chosen you to be my friends and I have appointed you to do the same. To go out after me and walk in sacrificial service and love for one another. Our Lord never asks of us that which he has not himself willingly done. And this is the next step of sovereign election Election to salvation and to this amazing friendship with the master is never by itself. It never makes the one chosen idle and spiritually lazy. In fact, if you are idle in the Lord, I wonder if you're in the Lord, frankly. There's just not much room for that in the scriptures. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, admonish the idle. So there's a little room. If you're idle, there's a little room for you to be admonished. But if you're idle in the Lord, I wonder if you're in the Lord because that's what, what God's calling and election does. It sets you on mission. He calls and appoints. They go together, flip side of the same coin. Jesus says they're appointed to, to go and to bear fruit and this fruit will remain. This obviously is speaking to these 11 men in the upper room. It's not very hard to think of what he's talking about. Go and bear fruit. Well, where does that happen? Well, the book of Acts, right? I mean, obviously, the next book in the New Testament. They are spread out from Jerusalem, and they go into all the world. They spread the gospel, and God builds the church. And it's built on the backs of their testimony of a resurrected Jesus who proves he is the Messiah of Israel. And God builds his church through their ministry, and we today stand on their shoulders, correct? They are the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2. And we stand on their shoulders because they were fruitful. Why were they fruitful? Because they were appointed. Why were they appointed? Because they were called. They did not choose it, but Christ chose them for it and sent them to do it. Brother or sister in the body of Christ, you're going to have some tasks that you didn't choose. In fact, I've said that a few times. Lord, I did not choose this. And that's my way of complaining, because I want out. No, but God chose you for it. He has good works prepared beforehand for you to do, Ephesians 2.10. You're his workmanship. In his sovereign wisdom, when he elected you to salvation, he had a, a plan for your life to use it for his glory. And that thing in front of you, whatever that is that you dread and don't want to do, that hill you have to climb, that battle you have to fight by his grace, physical, spiritual, emotional, relational, I don't know what it is. God's appointed you to that hour. This is the good work he's called you to go do, and he guarantees fruit, spiritual fruit, 
through what he's called you to do. But notice that he also carries along the, the bringing of that fruit through dependent prayer. That's what that last phrase in verse 16 does. It defines the whole thing. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So this means that the, the means by which they're going to see fruit that remains is their prayerful dependence on the Father through the Son. And think of Acts. That's exactly what they do, right? They go, they obey, but they obey dependently. They pray constantly. And they pray in the name of Jesus for the will of God. And what happens? Fruit, 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 fruit. I have found it to be a spiritual law in my life that I am most genuinely prayerful about those things that I know I am called to do and am most aware of my inability to actually do. I'm most fervent before the Lord, pleading with him to help me in things I know he wants me to do, but I also know that left to myself, I will never do like I should. Namely, loving my wife like Christ loved the church or shepherding the hearts of my kids to fear and and love the Lord and not provoke them to anger. to shepherd in the body of Christ with the word of Christ, moved by the spirit of Christ. As Paul says, who is fit for these things? No one. Which drives you to your face before the Lord to say, I can't do this, but you've told me to do this. Therefore, you must help me do this. And he delights to hear that prayer, and he answers that prayer with fruit. He meets you in your dependence and blesses you with what you need to do what he's called you to do. Now listen, it's easy to pray, and and most of our prayers, I think, unfortunately, are dominated by circumstantially related things. Asking God to move the chess pieces on the board of life to, to make this different or that different. When scripturally speaking, our our concern should be that God would would use us to do his will in the circumstances. That doesn't mean that we can't pray for relief from the circumstances. Paul did. Take the storm from my flesh. I remember the answer when you pray that. But he did pray for the the circumstance to change. It's okay to pray that way. You're not sinning. But our prayers should be compelled by and informed most by what God's appointed us to do. And what we know we can't do without his help, which is everything. Jesus said that. Without me, you can do nothing. So everything he's called you to do is a point of prayer for you and for those in your life. And this ought to dominate your prayer life. This ought to compel you to your face and know that God loves to hear and answer that prayer. Meeting you in that dependence and blessing you with his answer. Lastly, they're commanded. They're commanded. They're they're chosen. They're appointed and they are commanded as friends of the master. That's what brackets the whole text. We saw that already, to love one another. It's a command, as we've seen, that's built upon Christ's choosing and Christ's appointing. So he says, I've chosen you to be mine. I've chosen you to this life of service. And here's what that life of service looks like. It looks like loving one another. Remain in my love and let that love pour out of you to one another. Notice the high priority that he puts on love. It's a summation of all that God has commanded of us as believers. Love him and love one another. It's a summary of the law of Christ. 
That's why it's been one of the main themes of these final words of Jesus before the cross, to call us constantly to love one another. In chapter 13, he washed their feet, and then he said, listen, this is the the new commandment I give to you, that you love one another and do this for one another, serve one another like I just did. Chapter 15, he says, abide in my love, stay in it, remain it, never leave from it, and then love one another. Chapter 17, he's going to pray and ask the Lord to, to unite them in mind and heart. And, and as he does pray that, he, he culminates it with make them loving to one another that they might have your love abiding in them and me abiding in them. That's how he ends the prayer, the high priestly prayer, John 17, 26. This is the, the expression of true spirituality. Friend, if you know grace, if you've been saved from your sin, you've been rescued from the pit of hell, you've been given new life in Jesus, you you know the love of God through Christ for you. This is the essence of that new life, to love one another. Notice also the high standard he puts on it. That love is not a love of our own molding and our own shaping, but it's a love that fits the perfect mold of Christ himself. Love as he loved. What was the bare essentials of the love of Christ? It was a sacrifice of himself. We'll never outshine the love of Christ, but we will always, as his people, reflect his love to one another. In this way, then he commissions us to bear remaining fruit This is how the the fruit is processed and and brought about in the the life of the body and in the body's testimony to the world. It's that we love one another. Doesn't he say that somewhere? This is how people will know you, by your love for one another. And they'll be drawn to the gospel because of that reality. So, beloved, if you know the love of Christ, you've been chosen and appointed and now commanded to love one another. I don't know if you've ever heard this poem. It's by John Oxenham. The poem, Dear to Me, because I had a dear mentor who said this often. It was a high school principal, actually a principal all the way through my school years, who then became the dean of men at the college that I went to, that I went to because he went there, essentially. Had huge impact on my life, and and one that welcomed me into his life as his friend. I was best friends with his son, Andy. His name is Ken Davies. He threw tears at every one of his kids' weddings that I went to, did their wedding, and then quoted this poem as part of his sermon in tears. It's called, Love Gives. Love ever gives, forgives, outlives, and ever stands with open hands. For while it lives, it gives. For this is love's prerogative, to give and give. May God help us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving your son that we might know your love. Help us now to walk forward into this week, whatever it holds, full of that love given to us by your spirit that we might love one another as you've called us to. We pray for those among us who don't yet know this love, who've heard about it, but haven't yet experienced it in the depths of their soul. Father, would you bring them to saving faith in your son Would you rescue them from their sin and forgive them by your love? Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.